Our scripture reading this morning is from Jeremiah 4, verses 1 through 8. We're starting a new series in the book of Galatians, and thus we're kind of reading in the Old Testament while we preach out of the New, and so we're kind of doing a number of readings out of Jeremiah over the next couple months, uh, which will be a little bit foreign. It'll be a little bit, we'll do our best to explain them as we go and kind of what's going on in the book of Jeremiah, uh, but Ashley, uh, uh, if, uh, oh, there you are, if you, if you would come forward and read uh, Jeremiah for us. Thanks. Jeremiah 4. 1 to 8. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it, because of the evil of your deeds. Declare in Judah, and proclaim in Jerusalem, and say, Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud, and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are beginning a sermon series in the book of Galatians. Uh, it's entitled Galatians. Uh, I don't have any other fancier titles than that. Uh, simply, we are going to be preaching through the book of Galatians this fall. It'll take us from now almost up until Christmas. We've carefully timed it, so we'll have space for a Christmas sermon or two. Uh, but we are going to kind of take it, you know, chunk by chunk, work through it. What, what's Paul writing? Why is he writing these things? What's going on in Galatia? What is a Galatia? We'll talk about all these things. So if you're very new to it or if you're very old to it, uh, hopefully it'll be understandable and applicable to all of you. We are first going to read it. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin, Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Sarah's going to come and read it for us. Sarah. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I will say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. All right, Galatians. Why are we studying this book, this letter? It was written to people who live far from here, uh, written to a people who live in a time vastly different from our own. Why this letter? 
Well, because the Galatians were people who had God in their minds. To some extent, they had God in their actions, but they didn't have God in their hearts. From the outside, the Galatian Christians, they would have looked like pretty good religious people. They have none of the obvious and kind of blush-inducing sins of Corinth. They aren't caught in these weird sort of arguments about the end times and genealogies like the Thessalonians. They looked like, they would have looked like quite solid church people. And yet, something is terribly wrong. And even in this passage and later ones in Galatians, the Apostle Paul employs some very harsh, some very direct language in confronting them because they are losing the heart of the gospel message. And if they lose the heart of the gospel, then everything else is lost. Uh, Think about it this way. Imagine you had two sons, both in their 20s, but in very different circumstances. One son is is going off the rails. Uh, He's dropped out of college or university. He's using and dealing drugs. He's hanging around with a tough crowd. Uh, If he has any direction at all to his life, it is downward, quickly, fast. The other son, though, is the exact opposite. Well put together, cruising through university, going to be an engineer or a teacher, something very respectable. Uh, He's well-mannered. He makes it to family dinners. He makes his bed, all that stuff. You would think that if the Galatians were being compared to one of these two sons, it would be this one. It would be the latter. From the outside, that's how they appear. But in reality, Paul says, they are the former. They are are this son. It's not as obvious to us, but they are growing astray at a crucial point and heading downhill quickly. They've begun to disbelieve the gospel message, and therefore all the nice manners, all the tidy haircuts, you know, whatever, they don't mean anything. And this is an important message for us and for our church, for our time. We have to get the gospel right. If we don't, if we fail at that, then everything else we do here, small groups, potlucks, board game nights, whatever, it's all for naught if we don't get this right. So as Paul starts his letter, he begins with the gospel message. I want to take this text in three parts. Part one says who? Who's talking? Why is it important who's talking? Part two, the gospel, he kind of explains it briefly. And then part three, he talks about these other gospels that the Galatians are deserting to. We'll talk about that. Now, by way of background, Galatia, not a city. Most of Paul's letters are to a church in a city. Galatians uh, is not, or Galatia, not a city. It's an area. It's actually a province of the Roman Empire in South Asia, Southern Asia Minor. If you read through the book of Acts, uh, Acts 13, Acts 14, Paul goes to these places you've never heard of called Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and, and, and so on. Those are cities in this region, Southern Asia Minor. Now, where is that in our world today? It's basically modern-day Turkey, west of Istanbul on the Mediterranean coast, uh, if you can picture that area in your mind. And Paul is addressing all the churches in this region because they all have a similar ailment, which we'll get into. But none of these churches were very old or established. Some uh, church historian types, they actually put them at only a year or two old these churches, when this letter was written. So no matter, even if you're a little more, not quite as conservative on the dating, our church, Resurrection, we're almost 10 years old. We are older. We are more advanced. We are more established. We have more of just about everything than the people who would have read this letter. Now, I've mentioned his name a few times, but who's writing? First word, first, first verse, Paul. 
Now, Paul was originally Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was miraculously converted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul changes his name to Paul and receives a calling to go and preach the gospel to all the nations. And he spends the rest of his life mostly traveling the Mediterranean basin. We're not sure exactly how far he got, uh, but preaching, planting churches. He's eventually imprisoned by Rome and executed. That's Paul. Now, he says, next he says, Paul, an apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle? Specifically in this context, it means someone who has divine authority. Apostle is one who has borne witness to Jesus in the flesh and has been specifically called by Jesus to carry out his mission in the world. So in this understanding, we have 13 apostles in all of church history. The original 11, you know, less Judas, he doesn't count. Uh, Matthias, who was elected to replace Judas. And then Paul, the 13th one. These are the men entrusted to write scripture. But very quickly, Paul wants to clarify the nature of his apostleship. Actually, the Greek nerds love this. But basically, in Greek, it goes, Paul, just first word, Paul, second word, apostle, third word, not. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you what kind of apostle I'm not. I'm going to make a contrast. I'm going to make a distinction uh, about the kind of apostle he is. Not an apostle from men or through men. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means uh, lots of early ministry workers in the church and down through today, they get their calling from men or humanity more broadly. Early on, uh, churches were sending out preachers and pastors and church planters and deacons and ministry workers and all sorts of things to go do ministry in other places. So a church, aka people, would call people to works of ministry. And what was happening in the province of Galatia is that these traveling teachers, these traveling ministry workers, they were showing up to help. And we're like, that sounds great. <laughs> if someone showed up to help you, we're like, great, thanks. we got some stuff for you to do. Except that these traveling people were bringing along with them some unchristian ideas. And so Paul is going to have to distinguish between his authority as an apostle and the authority all these other teachers have. He's saying, I'm like a capital A apostle sent by Jesus himself. That's a different level. It carries a different weight from all who come later and are sent by men or through men. And by the way, that includes me. <laughs> uh, I am called by men through men. I'm called by a congregation, all of you, a number of years ago, uh, ordained by a presbytery. My calling came from men and, and, and through men and women. Now, we believe God's at work and those who are voting, of course, but Paul's calling, it's unlike mine. No human organization said, yep, Paul's a great guy. We're going to send him out. No presbytery voted him in. His calling came, still in verse 1, from Jesus Christ and God the Father who saved him and raised him spiritually from the dead. His calling is directly from God. That makes him uniquely positioned, more than me, more than anyone else, to declare what is true and what is not true. So when we read in Galatians, when you read in the rest of the scriptures, it's not a compilation of wisdom. This isn't sort of some clever ideas from the, the best thinkers of Christian history. We say this is the word of God. And it carries an authority, it carries a weight for us, it's more authoritative, authoritative, more weighty than what I say, what any other elder at this church says. It's why we dedicate a sizable portion of our time each Sunday to studying it, because this, we believe, is the, the truth of God. Now, does it take faith to believe that, that Paul wrote this and he was commissioned this way? Yes, sure, of course. But to read the words of Galatians and believe that they tell the true truth, it's vitally important to Christianity. So says who? Paul, an apostle called by God, Jesus himself. Okay, part two. 
the gospel. What is he explaining? Now, in some ways, the whole rest of Galatians is going to be about this gospel message, how it works out in our lives, some of the challenges to it. But it, even here, even in his greeting to the Galatians, it's, it's basically laid out, and we'll kind of walk through it. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first word from God to humanity is grace and peace. It's grace and peace. I have friends who've named their churches grace and peace, just to capture this idea. And if you read Paul's letters over and over, this is one of his favorite beginnings. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Now, grace means something like free gift, unexpected favor, unlooked for present. Peace is more than lack of war. It's this sense of being at rest, being whole. So what do you think is God's attitude towards you when he looks down at humanity? When he looks down at you, what words come out of his mouth? Now, for some of us, we think God's saying things like, try harder and do better. Others of us uh, may think that God is saying something like, I'm very disappointed in you. You, you, you. You're kind of a mess. Others of us think that God is saying things like, I don't like you very much. I'm going to punish you. I wish you would just stop. What, what, what do you think God is saying to you? But Paul is telling the Galatians something very important. And by the way, the Galatians are having some impressive struggles. God's word to them is grace and peace, favor, rest, gift, wholeness. God is not on his war horse. God's not shaking his head. God's not angry. God loves them. And he's bringing his goodness to them. See, when we begin to explain the message of Jesus, maybe you're sitting down with a friend or a family member and you're trying to articulate the whole message of the scriptures, what's it all about, how do you boil it down, what do you tend to start with? Maybe you begin, yeah, God is the creator, not a bad place to start. The sin of humanity, also not a bad place to start. Paul says here, the first word of the gospel is from God to us, and it's grace and peace. Or as John tells it, John 3.16 the first word is, for God so loved. It starts with God's love towards the world. The action of the scriptures, the sort of directional momentum of the gospel is God to us. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that begs a question, at least in my mind. How? How can God speak grace and peace to those of us who are by nature rebels? Verse 4, by Jesus who gave himself for our sins. Because Jesus gave himself for our sins. Now, this part comes up regularly at our church. The story of Jesus makes its way into most sermons. Um, and that is by design. That's on purpose. Because the story of humanity, the story of the universe is that our sins condemn us. Our sins separate us from God. Our sins have destroyed our relationships with God. They've marred the earth. We were lost in our sin, hating each other, being hated in return. As Paul writes to Titus, and yet, God wants to speak grace and peace to us, and therefore sin must be dealt with. And Jesus comes, and he dies on the cross in our place. He gave himself for our sins, that's what Paul says. Which means if you come to Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. Everything you've said, everything you've done, everything you failed to say, everything you failed to do, all the things you feel guilty and ashamed about, Jesus bore all of that. And as a result of Jesus giving himself for our sins, Paul writes, we have been delivered from the present evil age. What did Jesus' death accomplish? Deliverance. Rescue. 
Now, some of you are in university, and it was a popular thing when I was a student to take a world religions class. Uh, I went to the University of Guelph, and at the University of Guelph, at least, it was a very easy class. So it was like popular to take and really easy, sort of a win-win. Uh, and like, as a student, you're like, I'm supposed to be learning about the world, you know, all those sorts of things. Seemed like a good idea. Now, when you begin to read the, about the other religions of the world, not just what you know, the internet says about them, but when you take them seriously on their own terms, what are they actually saying, what's actually in their writings, what you discover is that the religions and religious founders, they mostly teach things, right? The Buddha, Noble Eightfold Path, Muhammad, the Five Pillars of Islam, you know, etc. Religious founders, religious leaders, they taught their followers, this is how you should live, this is what you should do. But the teaching about Jesus is different. I mean, Jesus teaches plenty of things, not denying that. But over and over we read the purpose of the life of Jesus was not primarily to teach, but to rescue. He didn't come with just a different way to live. He came to deliver people out of the land of death. Maybe imagine it this way. Imagine you were enslaved. Terrible thought. But tucked away in a foreign land without hope. And one day a man or a woman appears and they have fantastic ideas about what a free life could be like. Imagine working whatever job you wanted. That sounds great. Imagine having a family, saving for retirement. Imagine having your own home and your own schedule. If you are a slave, those ideas sound beautiful, but they're not that helpful. You're you're a slave. You can't get out. You You have no way of getting out of there. You can see the path, what a beautiful path, but you have no way of walking in it. Jesus does not come with a vision of a different life, with just some, I got some ideas about how it could be better. He comes to those in spiritual slavery and he says, I'm going to take the shackles off. Freedom's been purchased. There is a way where there was once no way. The death of Jesus brings rescue. And to finish off verse 5, that's why the glory in Christianity goes to God alone, to Jesus and the Father. Because we are beneficiaries of his rescuing work. We, we are not participants in it. We didn't give Jesus sort of a little nudge so he could get over the top to save us. He brings everything. We bring nothing. Therefore, he's the one who gets the glory. When my wife and I got married, I didn't have very much. I was a year post-graduation from university. I owned a terrible cell phone, a decent bike, and $10,000 of student debt. And Jen, on the other hand, was debt-free and she owned her own car, Subaru Outback, by the way, loved that car. And for someone in my position, I felt like I was marrying into incredible wealth. No debt and a car, what an amazing deal. Now, I may want to argue, I brought a lot of intangibles to the relationship. Uh, financially, though, financially, I only brought negatives. I, I was just, I was a negative asset to the, to the marriage. Jen was bringing all the positives. I brought nothing. She brought everything. The financial glory of our marriage, it was all hers. When it comes to our salvation, we are all me post-university. We're all in deep debt. We're not bringing anything to the table. We're in the negative. We owe things. And Jesus saves us. Jesus brings it all. All the glory goes to him. We receive. This is the gospel message. It tells the truth about us. tells the truth about Jesus and God. It tells the truth about salvation. This is all you need to be a Christian. We like to make the Christian life quite complicated, particularly us Reformed people. But the gospel really needs to be understood like an ocean, shallow enough that children can play along its edges deep enough that the most mature never reach the bottom. 
And perhaps for many of you, you can just like, I just need to stop right here. This is enough. Because maybe for you, new sins have popped up this week. Maybe old sins have, have come back and you need to hear and you just, it needs to kind of sink into, into your gut. Christ died for your sins as surely as he's died for all the others. He can rescue you. But that kind of does lead us to part three, other gospels. If you read a lot of Paul's other letters, at this point, after this sort of greeting, he's got commendations to hand out. Little, some little pats on the head, you're doing good at this, oh, that's going well. Or in, like in Ephesians, there's this theological sort of soaring exposition of what Christ has done. Uh, not so with the Galatians. Right away, Paul says he is gobsmacked that they are so quickly deserting Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice gobsmacked does not appear in the ESV. Uh, that's from like the Ben International Version, but here's, here's why I use it. Gob is actually old English slang for mouth. And so to be gobsmacked is to be so surprised that you like do the, the hand over your mouth emoji, like that shocked emoji face or whatever. Paul is saying he is astonished. He is gobsmacked that the Galatians are turning to a different gospel. He can't believe it. And not that there is another one officially, Paul's quick to say. All other gospels are just distortions of the true gospel. But let's break down exactly what he means. Paul says these Galatian believers, under the influence of outside troublemakers, they are, they're, they're agitating, they're shaking them. They are turning from the true gospel, which I just related to you, and they are believing something different. Now, what exactly does that mean? How does that work? How do false gospels work? Think of it this way. Uh, if, if the true gospel says, God wants to speak grace and peace to you, Christ has died for your sins, rescued you from sin and evil, then a false gospel sort of has to deny one of the points along the way. A distortion of the gospel would not sort of line up with the true gospel at one of the crucial junctions. So some false gospels deny that God loves us and wants to offer grace and peace to us. Other false gospels would deny the sinfulness of humanity. Others still would deny Christ's death and rescue. Others still would spread the glory around differently, uh, denying God his full due as the author of salvation. So which part, which piece is being jettisoned by the Galatian believers? I mean, this is a spoiler alert for the rest of the letter. We'll get into it in more detail. But the rescue of Christ is what is at stake in Galatia. And what's happening is Jewish background believers are coming into Galatian churches and they're insisting the death of Jesus for sins, it's not enough to be saved. It's good, it gets you most of the way, but there's more to do. There are Jewish customs and dietary laws that must be followed, you know, no more bacon, all the celebrations, all these sorts of things. Now underneath their insistence on Jewish cultural customs as necessary for salvation is an undercutting of the sufficiency of what Christ has done. They're indirectly teaching the death of Christ. It's not enough. You aren't really rescued. And that obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, that obviously strikes at the vitals of the gospel. Paul is astonished that they're deserting it. Now, <clears throat> what does this have to do with us? I've lived in Ottawa for about 10 years. I have yet to encounter a person who insists that I observe uh, Purim or Hanukkah in order to be a true Christian. No one has yet confronted me at Superstore and demand, take all those unclean bird meats out of your grocery cart. You're not allowed to eat those if you're a Christian. So what does this have to do with us? No one's coming along and insisting on Jewish cultural customs. Well, there's a hint. 
And so Paul follows up with as stern a warning as he can muster. If you look at verse 8, he's saying, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then a little bit lower, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In other words, there will always be false gospels. There will always be threats floating around. And they're not going to be preached, if you look at his words, they're not going to be preached by little demons in red suits with pitchforks. Paul says they're going to be preached by people who resemble angels. They're going to be preached by church people, by pastors in nice suits, and regular people that sound a lot like you. See, this has everything to do with us because false gospels, they're still around and they aren't always easy to spot. They don't have false gospel clothes that they wear. So let me do my best to describe just what a couple of them look like, what they sound like, that we might be able to see them before they do too much damage. Here are a couple of the most prominent I've come across. Okay, here's the first one. False gospel one. Underlying beliefs are not important as long as you are loving and kind. Underlying beliefs are not important as long as you are loving and kind. This is a classic Canadianism. Canadians, we don't really care what God you believe in. Believe in whichever God or goddess you please as long as you're polite. Does it make you a nice person? Then doesn't matter what's underneath. Now here's why this sounds, it's attractive and it sounds like the Christian gospel. Because Christians are supposed to be kind. <laughs> Kindness, graciousness, these things are fruits of the Spirit. It's part of the image and likeness of Jesus. But in the case of this false gospel, the order has gotten reversed. Christianity says, first you believe, and then that belief in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, it changes you over time into someone who is lovely and loving. But this false gospel says, just change yourself. Just be kind. Belief is inconsequential. It doesn't do anything to you. Your rescuer is ultimately you. If you aren't a kind person, it's your own fault. Now, should Christians be kind? Yes, of course. But our kindness grows as we become more and more like Jesus. The underlying beliefs are essential. False gospel number two. God's love is conditional based on how well we are doing. If you've been around church for a while, you kind of won't hear this said out loud, but we live like it sometimes. When we sin less, we feel like God probably loves me a little bit more right now. I'm doing really well. When we sin more, it feels like God's kind of mad at us. He probably doesn't love me so much right now. See, the problem with false gospels is they always have some truth to them. It's what makes them potent. And this false gospel leans a little too heavily on the sinfulness of humanity and a little too little on the love of God for his people. Is God fickle like us, changeable? No, his love does not change. His love is like the dawn. It rises each day to greet, uh, greet us. It's unfatigable. It's inexhaustible. Does God care how you are doing? Does he care if you sin? Of course. But does his love wax and wane like the tide? No. God simply loves us. False gospel three. True Christians believe more than the gospel. And it's a tough one for churches like ours. And you're like, that kind of sounds almost right. See, at one point we nod along when we say, hey, the basic gospel is God's love, humanity's sin, Christ's death and resurrection. It accomplished our rescue. We read the Apostles' Creed and said, yep, this is basic Christianity. But in our hearts, we subtly believe, well, if you're a real Christian, then don't you believe in infant baptism? Don't real Christians believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Are you a real Christian if you don't kind of love John Calvin? That's like a real question there. And the real question is, is the gospel enough? 
Is it enough? Is Christ's death enough to rescue? Or do we need to sprinkle a little bit on top to make sure people are the right kind of Christians? It's a little subtle addition of the gospel. But it's in fact a, dis- a distortion and, in Paul's words, a desertion of the gospel. Now we could probably go on. We could probably spend the rest of our day listing out various false gospels, subtle changes to the Christian message. But let me ask you a question. How do we know we have it right? Do you ever think about this? Ever like niggle at the back of your mind? How do we know that we are believing the true gospel? Because everyone is subject to it. Even Paul and the angels. I read it very quickly. But the beginning of verse 8, Paul says, even I am subject to this gospel message. Paul does not have the authority to change it or to add to it. And to put an exclamation point on it, Paul says, even if he comes along later, even if an angel from heaven, even if a PCA minister comes along later and they preach a different gospel, Paul says, they are anathema. They are under the curse of God. That's a serious charge. So this true standard for Christianity is the message. It's not the messenger. Resurrection Church, we do not have a corner on this message. Neither do the Baptists, nor the Lutherans, nor anyone else. The message is what makes the standard of what makes a faithful church, what makes a faithful preacher. And we do our best to proclaim it, to live by it, to live under its authority. But the message is how you tell when you are wandering from it, not the name on the door when you come in. Finally, there's a simple application here for all of us. Because lots of us, I know, know facts about Jesus. But what I started with, the Galatians had God in their, in their mind, they had God in their actions to some extent, but they didn't really have God in their heart. And so the question is, do you? Do you? And Billy Graham used to offer a simple, a simple test, and I'll give it to you. If you go to back to verse 3 and 4, can you substitute your own name for the pronouns in that verse? Can you say, grace to me, grace to Ben, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for Ben's sins to deliver Ben from the present evil age. Can you substitute yourself in there? Has this entered not just your mind, but your heart? Because the gospel is communal. It's for all of us, but it's also individual, offered to each one of us in turn. May you have ears to hear it. May you have eyes to see it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this refreshment on what the gospel is and what it isn't. Please teach these truths, not just to our minds, but to our hearts, to our souls, that they might sink down, deep down into us, that we might believe them and we might live by them. Please change us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.